Welcome to Talking Business Now. I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. Thank you for joining us. deal with uncertainty. My guest on this episode of Talking Business Now is Julie Benazet, and she's written an award-winning book on that very subject. It's called The Journey of Not Knowing, How 21st Century Leaders Can Chart a Course Where There Is None. Julie's work and life experiences have made her a firm believer in the potential of the new and the importance of understanding the underlying human psychology needed to achieve it. She earned her stripes for navigating the new as Amazon's first real estate executive. At Amazon, Julie spent four years as a member of the leadership team that brought the company from the early steep ramp-up phase to its emergence as a thriving enterprise. Julie speaks, coaches, and writes on galvanizing change in the 21st century and decoding human behavior in the face of uncertainty. In this episode of Talking Business Now, Julie talks with us about her book and leadership lessons from her many years as an executive, lawyer, and entrepreneur. Welcome, Julie. Thank you. Nice to be here. You've built numerous businesses, not just for yourself, but you've helped others do that too. What's propelled you to do that? I think that's been with me since I was a youth, just ask my parents. I've always had a love of the new. I grew up in Colorado Springs when it was a boom town, and I love the feeling that new things were happening all the time, and it fit with me. So when I entered the work world, I found that a natural place to go was the entrepreneurial route, so I took entrepreneurial uh, opportunities, uh, particularly new industries, and found that the shoe continued to fit, and it seems that I can't help myself. So (laughs) I also have to say I I have a love of pulling things off, that uh, when I was a kid, girls weren't expected to be anything uh, except be an arm ornament, and I was a redhead, and we just didn't qualify for that. Uh, And I wanted to do all these new things. So I just love the feeling of when you go show up and say, let's get this done, and then you get it done. And the wonderful feeling that everybody has of accomplishment. What are some of the different kinds of business ventures that you've been involved with? I have been in the cellular industry. I ran a project management firm that built out, uh, we we said we were the concrete truck that was driving the cellular world, building out all those cell towers around the country. I was a securities lawyer, so I capitalized many different businesses, you name it, everything from apple orchards to tech companies. And of course, the, the big one was Amazon, which I joined in 1998 as the first real estate executive and had the dream adventure of being in a new company, in a new place, in a new industry, knew everything, uh, and building out the global platform of its real estate and the supporting infrastructure. What road led you to Amazon? <laughs> a glass of Chardonnay. <laughs> Isn't that always the root of all of it? <laughs> yeah, I think people should never underestimate the power of friends. I was having dinner one night with a friend of mine who was Amazon's first uh, customer service director, and I was talking about a high-rise in Seattle that I was capitalizing. And at one point she said, you know this. And she said a potty word. And I said, what <laughs> potty word? And I said, uh, this real estate. Uh. And I said, oh, yeah, I know this. <laughs> and she said, you want to join Amazon.com? And I looked at her, and I had just left the cellular company, and I was kind of burned out. And I said, no. 
And she said, no, that won't do. Finish your glass of wine. And we jumped in a car, and I, I will stipulate here this was one glass of wine, so we were fit to drive. We drove to south, south of uh, Seattle and to this warehouse, and I had financed a lot of warehouses, so I was very familiar with what they should look like. And we drove up. It's 8.30 in the evening at, in Seattle, which is still sunny. And instead of people sort of hanging over the back, smoking and looking into the distance, there were people sitting down on the steps reading books. I thought, what is this? Mm -hmm. And then I walked inside, and when normally when you walk into an industrial space, it's the roar of machinery and a lot of forklifts going around. It was silent. And there were library carts all over the place bearing books and a large area that held computers and people ticking away. And I said, what? Again, what is this? And I became enchanted. And having financed so many new businesses, I was always open to the opportunity. But this one looked particularly different. So I uh, ended up joining. Yeah, and the rest is history, so they say. And, you know, I think that for many of us, I have to actually be reminded from time to time that, Amazon started out selling books. You just yeah. you kind of forget about that. Did you foresee that it was going to become even bigger than the books? Or if you didn't initially, at what point did you start to see that, oh, we're really on to something much bigger here? Great question. There was no strategic plan sitting anywhere in Amazon. That's just kind of a bourgeois concept. But it was very much about trying out things. And we had a mantra at, the point, at that point that from our CEO and founder who said, get big fast. And the idea was they wanted to create a dependency on Amazon where it became the reliable source, like McDonald's became the reliable source of, of hamburgers. Well, Amazon was going to be that reliable source of getting things online. So while we were only talking about books when I first arrived, we had 4 million SKUs, uh, it was clear that it was going to diversify. The day I walked in, we had just started the music store. And while I didn't map out in my own mind where we go it specifically, it was clear we were going to go to a much broader set of offerings, that it would include cloud computing and Kindles and all that stuff <laughs> was definitely not in my thoughts, but it doesn't feel like an unnatural progression given the attitude at the time. Let's talk about your book, The Journey of Not Knowing. What prompted you to write it? Uh, part of it was to protect my intellectual property. I had been speaking on it and talking about it for years. I taught leadership at uh, Harvard for 10 years in the design school to, uh, to executives, and it propelled me to read a lot of leadership books. And having been an executive and spent all my whole career with other executives, when I read these books, I thought, well, yeah, they're right. I mean, they've got the, the right principles here about setting the vision, inspiring the people, and aligning them. But something was missing. And the more I thought about it and the, my own experience as an executive, and I finally came up with the missing piece was the visceral piece, the thing that goes hand in hand with leadership, that whether you're leading a team, you're leading a company, or just leading your own life, there's a piece of it that is scary because you're going into the unknown. Mm -hmm. And so that's when I came up back on my experience in Amazon and what it was like to be really in a state of terror a lot of times, but <laughs> it didn't stop you. And 
the turn of phrase that hit me one night was being a leader is being comfortable with the discomfort of not mm-hmm. knowing. And, and that is just uh, when I said that to myself, I said, oh, that really encapsulates it for me. But uh, eating my own dog food, as they say in tech, I decided to test it on other people because I always say you have to test your market. So I spoke, I conferred with a number of executives I knew. I said, what do you think of this turn of phrase? Does that capture it? And they said, oh, yes. It is if people needed permission to feel uncomfortable and know that fear was okay. In fact, it was more than okay. It's a necessity. So finally, I wrote the book to capture the principles that grew out of that first turn, turn of phrase because I wanted to first organize my thoughts, but the second is I wanted to share a way of looking at leading change that I thought would resonate with people. Yeah. And the result is this book. And, you know, having been a business owner for 30 some years myself, what you say is just so true. When you said that, there was just no question that 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 it had to be proven. I always told my kids that when you're in business, every day is a pop quiz. And uh, yeah, you just, you you just never know when you walk in what you're going to be dealing with. And yet you get up every day and you go and you have to, you have to enjoy that kind of that space. And and it almost gives you a thrill, I think, when you're a business owner. (laughs) We may not want to admit it, but I mean, what else keeps you getting up and going in every day? So so let's talk about some of the challenges of change and why so many people fight that. Change can be a a bad word with a lot of people, especially employees. Well, I think uh, change comes with it, a sense of uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen and feeling out of control. And people detest that. In fact, I think if you did a survey, the vast majority of people would say they loathe the stuff, particularly if they're not the ones driving change. If you're at the receiving end, it's particularly awful because you're definitely out of control. But the idea of going out and experimenting with something where you don't know the outcome seems like an unnatural act. And who wants to participate in an unnatural act? So I think that's one of the stalling points that comes with change. And yet we live in a world where it's all change all the time, and we have to be able to be able to change. And what I try to, to reinforce with people is go towards it rather than away from it and see it as an asset rather than a liability. If you're feeling a little nervous, it means you're probably on the way to something good mm-hmm. because if you're paying to the attention to the market, you're paying attention to the stakeholders who you're trying to do something that will benefit them, that you're going to be experimenting with an idea that might not have been done before, but at the same time, it could produce something that would make everything better. And yeah. that is a pretty great feeling. Yeah, very true. One of the things that you say has not changed throughout all of this is the role of the leader. What is that role and why has it remained unchanged? Well, you need a crazy person (laughs) who's ready to launch this. (laughs) Somebody who, for whatever motivates them, really wants to improve things. And that is the the role of the leader. Uh, Leadership is simply defined as having an idea that will make things better and then convincing others to help make it happen. That's what leadership is. And it's something we've never gotten away from is at the end of the day, we need somebody to make the call. 
Uh, you'll, people talk about collaboration and consensus decision-making, and you'll notice when you're sitting at a table uh, with a bunch of people around it that they'll be talking about an idea, and then at one point people all go silent, and they all look towards one person, and that's the leader. And I, I always say, you know you're a leader when they all stop and then stare at you because they need that. And I, uh, it helps to clarify the road. The leader has, doesn't know where it's going to end up either, but the leader does know how that he or she's going to go about it. And that's an essential quality to building an organization that people many years ago, probably centuries, uh, Eric Fromm wrote Escape from Freedom, and he was making the point that ultimately people want some rules. They want some guidelines. And that's what the leader provides. Speaking of those rules and guidelines, I mentioned at the beginning in the introduction that you have studied human behavior and psychology as as people try to deal with that uncertainty and not knowing what is in front of them, perhaps, or what the outcome is going to be. But in studying that, you have been able to come up with some tools. In your book, you present four principles that you that you offer as navigation lights, and so they help you traverse the discomfort that comes with pursuing something new, and you call those four principles the core four. Can you talk about those a bit? Core four are principles to help you navigate the scariness of the known on the way to something better. So the first one is to discover your dreams, and I call these bigger bets. And these are things that will make life better for whatever stakeholders you choose, whether it is your project team, whether it is your community, whether it is your family. It's some group of people that you want to uh, improve something. It could be everything from your communication culture where you endorse the idea of giving honest and tough feedback as opposed to just being unconditionally supportive. Uh, it could be something where you want to take on a new product line. It could be a new way of populating your teams whereby people choose their own members rather than the manager making the decisions. Whatever it is, is you choose a group that you want to benefit and come up with an idea that you think will improve things for them. And then the other part of that is once you have this, let's call it a draft idea, you have to go and start having awkward conversations. And that means you need to discover whether your idea has any legs to it. And that often is uh, the reason that that idea doesn't exist already is because people have been wanting to avoid it. It's too politically scary. And the conversation begins with, so why is it that we're keeping this, you fill in the blank, division that's not profitable. So why is it this one person always represents us in the public forum rather than us all going to Toastmasters and learning to speak and, and talk on behalf of the company, etc.? So that to have this dream or this bigger bet, you have to go through an awkward place of learning what it is that people might want. The second one is get comfortable with the scariness of risk. Uh, by definition, when you have a new idea, you don't know the outcome. So you don't know without knowing the outcome, much less having an outcome guaranteed. It's scary. And to accept that as part of the deal, that you might feel it mentally, you might feel it physically, you probably feel it both ways. But rather than 
running away from it is to face it and say, okay. And when it, uh, you're going after your bigger bet or the dream that you've chosen and having those conversations, one of the places that this shows up is what I call the scary people. They're probably people you've been avoiding talking to because for whatever reason, they're screamingly smart and make you feel like a moron or they put you down or they're going to disagree with you. But whatever it is, is to say, okay, if I want to try out this new idea, I'm going to have to just take a deep breath and go and meet with those people and accept the scariness of it in as a part of getting to something bigger. Yeah. The third thing is to watch out for self-sabotaging behaviors, and I call these hooks. There's 10 of them. But these are defensive behaviors. They're all fear-based that give you short-term comfort, but they'll take you off the road to something bigger. And there are things we're all very familiar with, micromanagement, personalizing, conflict avoidance, things that you do which gives you this false sense of control over a situation. If you, if you don't know what micromanagement is, you haven't worked. Uh, <laughs> suddenly you see someone telling somebody else what font to use, how, where to put the staple, who to make the appointment with, and it's to give them this sense of, I know how this is going to turn out, rather than stepping back and looking at the broader, scarier picture, is this proposal going to work? Is this what this potential client really wants? And to catch yourself in the act of going into this reactive behavior that will not produce a bigger result and to take a different course that's more strategic. It's very true what you said. I, I've been in that place before, and so I, I know exactly what you mean. But how do you get yourself out of that? When you see yourself starting to micromanage, I love the, the example of telling people where to put the staple in the piece of paper. <laughs> It's easy to say, don't do those things. But when you're in this weird mindset that's where you need to have some sense of control, how do you break that? How do you get out of it? Well, the first thing is to know yourself well enough to catch yourself in the act. And we all respond differently. For example, some people, when they get into one of their hooks, say it's micromanagement, you get this sudden feeling of dead calm that's almost unnatural. And if you learn that, uh uh-oh, this is me avoiding things, need to pivot here. Other people will get frenzied when they get into it, and that's the way it shows up for them. But whatever it is, is to learn how when something triggers you, and uh, these things that precipitate these defensive behaviors don't announce themselves. They just show up. Somebody right. starts screaming at you and you go to a conflict avoidant place is to say, okay, I'm in a conflict avoidant place. I am disengaging fast and not participating in this conversation. Say, oops, I'm stepping back. I'm leaving the, the forum here and this is not going to be good. And then literally pause and reflect. It's a chance to stop and say, oops, and have a quick meeting with yourself mm-hmm. is if it literally um, moments of quiet are underestimated for their power in business. If you notice a meeting, everybody's talking at once. The person in the room that knows to sit quiet for a minute actually is also seen, often seen as being very grounded and powerful. But it's not about power. It's about self-management. So that when you catch yourself. Even if you stop for five seconds, it stops the speeding train Mm -hmm. of reactivity. 
and it starts to give yourself options. And literally, it's like the aperture of a camera. It opens wider. As your anxiety starts to go down, your ability to see what's happening around you goes up. And then to start looking what you, at your, uh, what's happening in that room and taking in what would be a better way to manage this situation and pivot to a different strategy. It's, it's called creating a new hook cycle. Yeah, so self-awareness is key, and then just giving yourself those few seconds is sometimes all it takes to realize what's happening and reset yourself, as you said, find, you know, reset the hook or uh, to move through that period. Now, there's a fourth one, too. Uh, the fourth one is find drivers to fuel your travel through the scariness of the unknown. And we don't do this just because we're masochists. You know, there's a reason why we want to go after these new things. If you're running a business, you probably want it to succeed. So something that helps you through this uh, discomfort that comes with the unknown is to choose something that has meaning for you that will get you through. And it can be a very situational thing. It could be so simple as I really loathe my opponent so much. I will deal with the scary tech department who usually make me feel like a moron but I need them to get this proposal right so I and the last thing I want to see happen is the smug expression on this competitor's face if he or she wins the deal this will keep me fired up and keep me going but the deeper that you go the more power a driver can give you for example if you think about the women soccer players in the U.S. team for 2019, yes, they wanted to prove to the world that they had the best team and they were great athletes, but something that fired them up more deeply was they had a strong support of diversity and inclusion, and they wanted equal pay, and that made them really want to prove to the world that we are great players, we are equal to everybody else, and deserve to be paid as everybody else. Another driver is an honored relative that really uh, you uh, wanted to emulate or you wanted to please. Uh, Richard Branson talks about his ancient grandmother who said uh, at age 98 or 99, you only have one life to live, you better live it right. And when he would find himself stepping back and not going after something, he'd think of what his grandmother would say. And he so respected her that he thought, okay, Grandma, I'm not going to squander this opportunity. I'm going to go after it. It's whatever gives you meaning that will help you move towards something bigger. Let's say we've, you know, we worked through these four principles. We found our dream. We've gotten comfortable with the scariness of risk. We've... Uh, become aware of our self-sabotaging behaviors, and we have a driver or two, but it just doesn't work out that what we were going after uh, didn't materialize, or it materialized, but it just turned out not to be sustainable. What then? Well, the road to success is paved with pa with failures, uh, so it's part of the deal, mm -hmm. is you recalibrate and accept that as part of the journey, for sure. Uh, at Amazon, we failed all the time. We didn't publicize them, but right. if you think, for example, the story of Z-Shops was supposed to be a competitor of eBay, and it was a colossal failure. But what Amazon did was to step back and learn from it as, okay, why is it failing? And one of the things that we discovered was 
that people didn't want to look for a product in three different offerings. Uh, you can go the Z-Shop route or you can go the direct seller route or something else. Instead, they want all the possibilities on one page, one place within you know one square inch or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You've got quite micro. But we learn from it, and now 50% of Amazon's retail stuff is sold that way as a consolidated page. So to, to understand that we won't know all the pieces till we're done with it and to be know that course correction is an honorable thing to do rather than a thing of uh, humiliation. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would say that the bigger failure is not to act at all and to never know whether or not you <laughs> you achieve the dream or have to re- maybe fail and have to recalibrate. So, you know, there's that too. You have written a new book that's just been recently released. It's a companion to The Journey of Not Knowing. It's called The Journal of Not Knowing. And so talk to us about that and, and what that offers people. The Journey of Not Knowing, the first book, I wrote as a fable because I didn't want to write a book that I myself would not read. <laughs> and I find that people learn well by stories. And uh, so I created the story of a eight-member leadership team that, in order to win a important proposal, had to explain to their board, the board of that new cl- possible client, why it is they get fired by another client. And none of the leaders knows why, because they didn't want to face it. They had uh, they didn't want to face what had happened with that client, and they didn't want to face themselves. So that was the essence of the book, is to create an accessible, recognizable scenario that, that demonstrated the principles, the core four, and give people some things to think about. But at the same time, we have uh, had run journey programs for several years and have learned a lot. And the workbook, The Journal of Not Knowing, is a compilation of many different exercises to allow people to work through their own journey of not knowing, to what dreams do they have, what's getting in their way, how do they get out of their own way, and what will move them forward. So it's uh, something that people can do on their own. They can do it in groups. Uh, Coaches use it. It's a combination of exercises, puzzles, matrices, (laughs) pictures. I love pictures. You can pick at a little piece of it. You can go through it methodically, whatever your learning style is. But it was something that was in response to many people requesting having something that they could apply the principles of the journey and to their own lives. You mentioned that you like pictures. And one of the things that I know that you love is photography. And you use images to organize your thoughts. I, I think that's really very interesting and almost uh, fits into the kind of fits into the theme here. You know, you can see, you can visualize through this uncertainty the outcome that you want to achieve. And and so, do you think that the uh, the fact that you organize your thoughts using images has helped you through your own journey through uncertainty? Yes, I when I think, I tend to look in the distance. I am very visual. Uh, and I think uh, not everybody is that way, but for me, I need to see the broader picture, and seeing an image allows me to see several different agree- ingredients and figure out how they come together. And there's also a visceral piece. that it's the same, For the same reason that stories work with people, they land with their feelings, their histories, their emotions, and they come from places that are not linear. I think uh, my, over the years, I've discovered working with executives is 
if you describe a scene to them and they are imagining what it looks like, it's interesting how they have different perceptions of it. Uh, eventually, you have to go and say, what does the scene really represent? And line out your principles behind it. But again, it goes back to that visceral piece. I think that our stomachs are probably the smartest organ in our body. It tells us a lot about whether something clicks or not. Does this feel right? People talk about uh, feeling in your gut. My, mm -hmm. my gut feeling is this. And I think that's a very powerful concept. Uh, where it falls apart is when people don't verify and just uh, gut and go. But if you start with the place that's landing with you, we're an assemblage of so many different parts and pieces that the thing that puts order to it finally is what kind of emotions it generates within us. And when I see photos and I see a photo that really speaks to me, I say, well, what's going on with these photos in this photo? When I see a photo of a two people talking to each other. You can only see the face of one. You see the back of the head of the other. What's going on here? Well, what you realize is there's a lot you don't know. And what questions would you have to ask in this conversation to say what's happening between these two people? And I think life is like that. Oh, so true. What do you think is the most important piece of advice you could offer to our listeners who maybe want to start their own businesses or they're in a place with their current business where they want to take it to a new level or introduce something new. Commit to it. It's funny. If it's a new business, it's interesting. Um, over the years, I've noticed that more people than not end up going into new business by an involuntary act. They got laid off. They got divorced. They're in a family business and somebody died and you got put by the succession plan into a new role that you weren't ready for. But whatever whatever gets you, and then there are people who actually choose an idea and go yes. after it. But whatever it is, is to commit to it. And people underestimate how much time, energy, and passion goes into building a business because it's not only – spending time with an idea, it's spending time with a lot of people who are going to be affected by the idea, and, uh, and then convincing others that this idea is going to work. Uh, so to understand that it is a pretty full-time thing, and that if you go in it in a sort of a half-committed way, you won't get there. How do we get copies of your books, The Journey of Not Knowing, the original book, and then the workbook, The Journal of Not Knowing? Uh, one of two places, of course, Amazon, this little bookstore. That <laughs> <is there. laughs> uh, and it's in paperback, ebook, and audiobook form. Uh, you can get it at barnesandnoble.com. You can also get it off my website, juliebenezet.com. Uh, it has links to various channels uh, uh, that you can get it from. So juliebenezet.com, and we will have all of these links in the show notes. So if you're driving or walking right now, you don't have to stop and write all this down. Just look in the show notes uh, of your favorite player. Julie, it has been a pleasure talking with you today. Really appreciate you sharing all your insights with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And I'm your host, Kelly Scanlon. I appreciate you tuning in to this episode of Talking Business Now. If you'd like to suggest podcast guests or topics, or to subscribe to the Talking Business Now newsletter or podcast, please visit my website at interrobangsolutions.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-R-O-B-A-N-G solutions.com. Interrobangsolutions.com. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.